recite together the Shema as Jesus would have done, uh, especially in worship, especially right before the scripture was read. Let's recite the Shema together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can have a seat. Last weekend, I was in Denver with my children on Saturday, and I drug them to the Denver Nature and Science Museum so I could get a ticket to see the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit. Um, There are probably 10 or 15 tiny pieces of papyrus under glass on the edges of a huge round table in the middle of a room, and people were crowded around this table, and as you can imagine, they were moving about one or two inches every five minutes. When I walked into the room, I spotted this small gap in the crowd, and I just jumped right into the circle to look down, and I saw the papyrus that had the Genesis flood story written on it. When I looked down, there was Genesis 7 and 8 written in Hebrew, exactly what you were talking about. I'm thankful to Daryl for preaching last week, and I am also very grateful for the round table of leadership that we have here. Our scripture passage is Genesis 9. I'm going to begin with verse 8, go through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we are at the end of the flood story and the rainbow is in the clouds. Finally. Finally, the rainbow. I grew up going to Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and so early on, I understood the rainbow to be a reminder of the story of Noah's Ark. And after spending five weeks in the biblical text of this story, I get that the story is a story for grown-ups, but I think I spent much of my life believing that this was a children's story I even uh, decorated the nursery for my first child with arcs and pairs of animals and rainbows. But I'm also a child of the 1970s, and I can remember in the 1970s there was a group called the Rainbow Coalition. 
The Rainbow Coalition would show up on my television during the nightly news when the subject was politics, and they were about civil rights for all people. And the rainbow was a symbol that they referenced that was to be a sign of diversity, all the colors together. When I was in school, in high school, my father went on a men's retreat called an Emmaus walk, a walk to Emmaus. And when he came home from that retreat, so did the rainbow. It showed up on t-shirts and bumper stickers and rear view mirrors. And when we saw the rainbow in the sky after the walk to Emmaus, we would stop what we were doing. If we were driving, we would pull over to the side of the road and take pictures because we were reminded by that rainbow of God's promise, God's grace. More recently, I noticed that San Antonio painted rainbow crosswalks on Main Avenue for the Pride Parade. I think a rainbow in this instance means inclusion. But I noticed a man who was taking a picture at the crosswalk. He said to him that those rainbows meant safety. We are safe now, he said to the reporter. When I was in seminary, I worked for a Methodist pastor named Charles Walls. And Charles was the first to tell me that Noah's Ark was no children's story. That the rainbow was a bow or a weapon. And God hanging his bow in the clouds was like God placing a gun in a gun rack or in a, in a gun cabinet. I'll put my weapon here as a reminder for me and you Because remember, in this story, the destruction of the world by the flood was God's doing. So in verse 11 of our passage, God says, Never again, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The rainbow is a never again reminder. Now I've heard some preachers say, God will never again destroy the earth by water, but he didn't say fire. He didn't say earthquake. Yikes. (laughs) That then means that the rainbow becomes a threat. (laughs) See this rainbow? Remember when I wiped everything out with water? That was bad. Wonder what I'm going to do next time. (laughs) Oh, that seems a little bit off to me. Now, I think you miss a pretty big clue in this passage if you go with that interpretation. And the big clue is the word covenant. Covenant appears repeatedly in this passage. It actually shows up in the verses that I read to you seven times. Seven times the number of divine perfection. So the rainbow... Part of the flood story is about covenant. The rainbow is a sign of the covenant that God makes with the world. Like a wedding ring is a sign of a marriage covenant. The rainbow is the sign of the first covenant in the Bible. A covenant is a promise that we make with an open heart and with great hope. A covenant is a promise that we make with an open heart and with great hope. It's very different from a contract. We use a contract to protect our own self-interests, to protect our benefits, and there's a time and a place for that. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs teaches that 
Self-interest drives politics and economics, the market and the state. So contracts frame these areas of our lives. Contracts require signatures and attorneys and courts of law, but covenants are different. As Sachs writes, covenants lift our horizon from self-interest to the common good. So while a contract is about you and me, a covenant is about us. So there's this required step or even a leap in thinking that has to be made to enter into a covenant. The thinking is that I value what happens between us, that I value what happens among us as much, if not even more, than I value my own self-interests. Now, maybe the very first time that I got this was when I had a baby. I'd been part of other covenants, but they didn't require that I work this muscle, this muscle of valuing we as much as I value me, which typically means that I'm going to sacrifice for you even when I don't want to. So the first year of parenting, I would wake up from a good deep sleep even when I was exhausted. I would go to the grocery store to buy diapers, even when I didn't need anything else. I would schedule my work around pediatrician appointments and childcare. I quickly realized in that first year of parenting that being a parent is not about what I can get out of the relationship. Because what do you really get during that first year of a child's life anyways? A few smiles, some good pictures. 20 years later, I see that being a parent is not at all, at all, about my own self-interests or my benefits. It's about my identity. It's about who I belong to. Covenants enact the belief that life is better together than it is alone. So we have covenants with our children we have covenants with our spouses, with our faith communities, with our schools, with our parents. These are places where we sacrifice and where we belong. And there's something important that a covenant requires from us. A covenant that a contract doesn't require this, but a covenant requires vulnerability from us. It requires that we be vulnerable. At the end of the flood story in Genesis 9, God takes a very vulnerable stance because there's no change in humanity in this story. The beginning of chapter 6 makes the claim that the world is wicked, and at the end of chapter 8 in Genesis, it says that the human heart is evil. There's no change in humanity. God says to humanity, you be, you be fruitful, you multiply, you value life. And I will value life. I will not destroy. It's the same thing again, like creation. And I want to pull the Godhead over to the side of the story and say, you're setting yourself up for failure. This is not going to work. You see how they are. But I think God would say back to me, but I'm different. I've changed. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that in this story, in the flood story, there is an irreversible change in the divine. 
Now God will approach creation with unlimited patience and forbearance. That's who God is at the end of the flood story, and it's who God is now. It doesn't mean that we can't destroy one another. We very well can, but that's not God's work. There's a lot of potential in a covenant. There's potential for disappointment. (laughs) And I'm not a big fan of disappointment. It usually involves some miserable cocktail of grief and anger and sadness for me. I don't like disappointment. But disappointment has a way of showing me that the world is not all about me. It has a way of giving me a a more accurate view of the world. Alain de Baton wrote an article for the New York Times in 2016 that was the most read article that year, and it was titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. More people read that article than any other article in the New York Times this year, that year, 2016, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Baton says that we each have an array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to another person. And he suggests that a standard question when dating early on should be something like this. This is how I'm crazy, fill in the blank. How are you crazy? You see, when we're in casual relationships, when they threaten our flawed places, we blame and we run. It's harder to do that in a covenant. And interestingly enough, Alain de Baton claims that he could write follow-up articles that would be titled, Why You Will Land the Wrong Job, Why You Will Have the Wrong Child, Why You Will Go on the Wrong Vacation, Why You Will Pick the Wrong School, and Why You Will Go to the Wrong Church. (laughs) Essentially, we will all be disappointed in relationship. We have triggers that are set off when we are seen close up. And the solution then becomes generosity. It becomes generosity and a a commitment, a commitment to negotiate the differences that we have. That's who the right person is to enter into a covenant with, one who is generous and one who is committed to working through differences. And that's what we get from God at the end of chapter 9 in Genesis. We get generosity, we get compassion, and we get commitment. And so then the other thing that there's a potential for in a covenant is there's a potential for transformation. You see, I've lived long enough that I know I'm more likely to change in an atmosphere that's characterized by compassion and generosity than anger and demand. That didn't work very well for me. I've learned that. And that's what characterizes this first covenant in the biblical narrative. God brings compassion. God brings patience. God brings generosity. I saw an interview of Becca Stevens this week. She's the founder and director of Thistle Farms in Nashville. 
And she was asked in this interview, how far does love go? And her response after thinking for several seconds was, as far as it needs to go. Love's, love goes where it's needed. And so then she said, when I'm excited, love goes. When I'm disappointed, love goes. When I'm tired, love goes. Love shows up where it's needed. And that's where transformation happens. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you can't have a working covenant without experiencing some transformation. You can't be a part of the covenant and stay the same. Jesus came across some people in covenant who refused to change. And he called those people Pharisees and Sadducees and hypocrites. Being a part of a covenant means that we are willing to be changed. We are willing to be transformed for the better. I saw, um, I took a picture when I was traveling this summer, when I was in New Mexico, and I, I brought that picture to show you. It's a, a picture of um, a carving that was by, it was carved into a, the trunk of a tree by a stream in a monastery in New Mexico. And that statue is titled Hosanna Madonna. It, it's supposed to be Mary holding the infant Jesus. She's holding him in her left arm. And this is an image of change that can occur in covenant, I believe. When I looked at that statue, I saw security and strength and joy and hope. That's the kind of change that happens in the presence of great mercy. Remember Mary saying these words, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices because the mighty one has done great things for me. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He lifts up the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. He helps his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise that he made to my ancestors. Covenant. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, you are a master craftsman. We are thankful for the work that you do in each of us. Our world changes for the better when we make promises to you and when we make promises to one another in a spirit of compassion. So would you give us the courage to step into covenant, to step into covenant where we have not, because we want to be hopeful and we want to be joyful. Would you also highlight for each of us places and relationships where you are still at work? Give us, Lord, the strength to remain faithful, that we might see our world, our homes, our schools change for the better. We love you and we love the people and the places that you've given us. Amen. Amen. Let's